In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents The Deer Hunter. And welcome to episode 93 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Paneris. In this episode, I'm taking a break from my regular comic series coverage to cover one of the classic Vietnam War movies, which is 1978's The Deer Hunter. To do this, I'm not alone. Joining me is a guest who I have already had on. He was on episode 75, and we talked about First Blood and uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2. So please welcome back to the show my friend Luke Giaconetti. How are you doing? I am doing great, Tom. Thank you for having me back on. Um, I'm very excited to talk about um, one of the uh, most memorable and in, in a lot of ways controversial depictions of the Vietnam War ever on film. Yeah. So um, before I get into kind of the details and the, and the specs about this film and everything, um, what is your history with it? I have possibly the dumbest origin story of all time for the deer hunter. <laughs> um, so my dad was, as I've said numerous times on, on many different shows, my dad was an early VHS adopter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had, I always remember having a, a first-gen style, you know, home model VCR from the youngest uh, memories and so we always had a, a lot of movies on VHS. And I remember I was in either uh, either the first or second year of, uh, of high school, and I had become obsessed kind of with Christopher Walken hmm. uh, between A View to a Kill and Batman Returns and The Dogs of War and, um, you know, just, just everything else that, that Walken had been in. I had really become moderately obsessed with Christopher Walken. And at the same time, you know, I always was interested in the VHS uh, tapes my dad had that were a movie that were over two tapes. Yeah. You know, because they they stood out on the shelf, right? Because they were twice as big. And so normally that was either like biblical epics, you know, like the Ten Commandments. Ben-Hur. Or, yeah, yeah, Ben-Hur, Covidas, stuff like that. Or they were The Godfather. And, and, you know, and again, I I was familiar with The Godfather, obviously, and, and Mm -hmm. all that. But the deer hunter was one of them. And and so I'm looking through, one day I'm just at the house by myself, and I was looking through all the double tape VHSs, and the deer hunter is one of them. And I'm like, what is this? I've never heard of this movie. And I pull it out, and who's on there? Christopher Walken. <laughs> and Academy Award winner, Christopher Walken. I'm like, oh, yes, I've got to watch this. So, yeah, so, you know, the, the only reason I watched the deer hunter was because Christopher Walken was in it, and I, like I said, I was, I was obsessed with Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. And then I'm watching this movie unfold, and, you know, anyone who's seen The Deer Hunter can tell you that, 
you know, the, the things that the deer hunter is famous for, they're not in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And then about an hour in, you're like, oh, my God. And that, that was, <laughs> you know, that was it at that point. Luckily, you know, writer and, uh, and director Michael uh, Cimino, uh, had me kind of hooked just on the characters, so I stayed with it, and I'm glad that I did. Yeah, yeah for me, this is this is one I saw a few years ago for the first time all the way through, but it was one of those movies that either because of showings um, on TV or, you know, catching it you know later on when I did get cable, that I would see in bits and pieces, and I knew a lot of the very famous scenes and references because of either... I don't know, some special about Hollywood clip, you know, one of those Hollywood clip show specials where they just talk about a bunch of different movies or like because they spoofed it on the Simpsons like three or four times or something. So, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I was kind of the first, the first, uh, time I saw it when, when you know, when you know what to expect or you know of like, say the Russian roulette scenes and things and sitting through that first hour or so of the movie and you're like, okay, so when does this, (laughs) <laughs> when, yeah. when do we wait i thought this was about and then and then it eventually gets there but you're right it, it, it's um and, and we'll talk about this in a little more detail later Samino does a very good job of of establishing the characters of, of the film in a, in a very organic way yeah so, so the movie itself was uh released on december 8th 1978 it ultimately grossed about 49 million dollars um the movie that Christmas season that overshadowed it in terms of its box office uh, you know box office prowess was of course Superman but the deer hunter did clean up in some regard at the Academy Awards that were awarded in April of 79 it was nominated for nine of them it won five uh, it won best picture which uh, trivia note uh, that award was presented by John Wayne in his final public appearance because um, he was, uh, I think he was dying of cancer. Yeah. Michael Cimino won Best Director. Christopher Walken won his Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, and then it also won for Best Film Editing and Best Sound. It was nominated for Best Actor to, for uh, De Niro, and he lost to John Voight for Coming Home. It was nominated for uh, Meryl Streep, got her very first Oscar nomination for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, but she lost to Maggie Smith for California Suite. And then it also was nominated but did not win uh, for Best Cinematography and then Best Original Screenplay. Um, uh, Actually, it lost to Coming Home on the Best Original Screenplay. Uh, It has been, since uh, 1978, added to the Library of Congress's registry for, um, you know, films to preserve or works Mm -hmm. of of film to preserve, uh, saying, saying that it is an important piece of American culture. The plot is this. The movie runs about what, like three three hours five minutes or something. Like you yeah, said, it was about. A, it was a two tape movie, and um, I was kind of in the same boat as you were, because my 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 dad bought a VCR in the very early eighties, and um, had and I've mentioned this before had like had a what was then called the CBS Video Club membership mm-hmm. as early as eighty six, and you know he wouldn't always buy the videos. Every once in a while, he'd he'd order you know one that had come down all the way to 1995 but you know usually you'd see that's where you'd see these VHS tapes on sale for like what 79.95 or whatever yeah and yeah. but yeah they they had their fair share of like you know two tape things and you're right they were mostly biblical epics like on the order of Ben-Hur King of Kings and 
the Ten Commandments and stuff. So it, it took a while for me, and and I like deliberately sat down. I was like, I'd never seen this before, and I popped it in and watched it. And then I rewatched it for our episode, and it it um you know holds up incredibly well. So the uh like I said, the movie's three hours and, and five minutes long. It has like distinct sections to it. It's almost like three uh, separate or three or four separate acts, and the first act. Um, establishes everybody uh, prior to uh, the main characters, three of the main characters' service in Vietnam. And um, I, I'm cribbing from the Wikipedia plot synopsis, which is a very, very lengthy and detailed one, but it does take place in the small working-class town of Clariton, Pennsylvania, which I believe is supposed to be just outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, and it starts off in late 67, um, and I'm just going to read what they have because it tells you who all these characters are. We have a steelworker named uh, the steelworkers named Mike, Stephen, uh, and Nick. And, and Mike is played by Robert De Niro. Stephen is played by John Savage, and Nick is Christopher Walken. Uh, with the support of their friends and coworkers, Stan, John, Cazal, is it Cazali or Cazal? It's Cazali, I believe. Cazale, okay, uh, and Peter Axel Axelrod, Chuck Aspergen, and a local bar o- owner and friend, John Welsh, played by George uh, Zunda. 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 Yeah. yeah. Prepare for two rites of passage: marriage and military service. Uh, Mike is early established as the sort of serious but unassuming leader of the group. Stephen is getting ready to be married. Um, he's kind of nagged by his mother, and Nikki is uh, a lot more introspective, um, and he and he loves deer hunting. And and the the title of the film comes from the fact that uh, after Stephen and his girlfriend Angela's wedding, they do go deer hunting, and 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 they later on in the movie they will as well. Um, but so yeah, they get married in this big Russian Orthodox. Um, wedding and uh it it is i think it's roughly like 45 to 50 minutes of the movie it is an enormous chunk of the movie and um we're introduced to a a couple of other uh characters mainly among them linda who is played by meryl streep she is nick's girlfriend you know so we have we have this wedding that takes place and like i said samino does this way of staging it just letting it happen and we meet the characters in a very very organic way and um eventually you know people get people get drunk at the wedding um Mm -hmm. mike after later that night runs naked through the uh streets of the town um and uh one thing that's important to later in the plot is that uh nick eventually chases chases him down and, and drunkenly begs him not to leave him over there if anything happens to them in combat uh they all go deer hunting the next day and um mike is a little exasperated by some of his friends because they're drinking a little too much, um, clowning around a little too much, and um, Mike goes hunting afterwards by himself, and he kills the deer with one clean shot, and then they go back to the bar, and they're spraying beers off each other, and they're just, everything's very rambunctious, and then we go to Vietnam. And uh, Vietnam starts off with an attack on a village. Mike's now a staff sergeant in the, uh, in the Special Forces, and over the course of the first few scenes of Vietnam, the, he, Stephen, and Nick all end up getting captured by the Viet Cong, uh, or the NVA, and they are put in a PW camp. And uh, two things that come out of this this uh, in, long scene of PW camp are this. One, they are kept essentially, I believe they were called tiger cages, and this is one is in the river, so, the, yeah. so they're kept kind of clinging to the top of the cage. And I always picture... 
Um, those are people who are familiar with the Batman story, Vengeance of Bane, where they would the, at one point they put him in solitude and the the water as the tide goes in and out, the water rises and lowers itself in the cell, so he has to survive by holding on to the top of the grate. And that's kind of what happens in here. Um, and Chuck Dixon wrote it, so I could imagine he might actually be referencing yeah. <laughs> the Deer Hunter. <laughs> um, I can see that absolutely. Yeah. But the most famous, but the most famous game, uh, most famous scenes involving torture and and mistreatment of of them as POWs is that the uh, guards force them, all the prisoners, to play Russian roulette. And they gamble on the outcome. Stephen, at one point, is forced to play against Mike. Um, Mike offers moral support. Stephen breaks down. He points the gun upward while pulling the trigger. He graces himself with the bullet when it discharges. Uh, that's when they put them into an underwater cage. And they hatch an escape plan. Um, the plan is that they, Mike and Nick are going to play against each other, with Mike convincing the guards to let them play Russian roulette with three bullets in the gun. Uh, after a tense match, they kill their captors and they escape. They rescue Stephen, they float down river, and an American helicopter eventually finds them. Nick's the only one able to get aboard, and uh, Stephen falls back into the water. Mike rescues him, he helps him reach the riverbank. Uh, Stephen's legs are broken, Mike carries him through the jungle to friendly lines. They find a caravan of locals escaping the war zone. He puts Stephen on a, a South Vietnamese military truck. Later on, Nick recuperates in Saigon in a military hospital, not knowing where anybody went. Apparently, he's also suffering from some sort of stress-induced amnesia. Uh, after being released, he goes AWOL and aimlessly stumbles through the red light district as night. He encounters a man named Julian Grinda, who is a Frenchman outside a gambling den where men play Russian roulette for money. Grinda entices the reluctant Nick to participate and leads him into the den. Mike is there watching the game, but the two friends do not notice each other at first. When Mike sees him, he's unable to get his attention, and when Nick is introduced to the game, he grabs the gun, fires it at the current contestant, and then again at his own temple, causing the audience to riot and protest. Grinda hustles Nick outside to his car to escape the angry mob, and Mike can't catch up to him as they speed away. So Mike returns to the United States. He maintains a pretty low profile. Um, he doesn't even attend his own welcome home party. Then he visits Linda the next day. They grow close, and this was something that was established a little earlier at the wedding that Mike was kind of had always been, always had feelings for Linda, and was doing his best to just ignore them as, as best as he could. Angela is beside herself with grief over what has happened to Stephen. She tells Mike that uh, he is at a VA hospital, where he, which is where he's been for several months. Um, he does go hunting one last time, and after tracking a deer across the woods, fires into the air, and he sits on a rock escarpment, thank you, Wikipedia writer, yeah. <laughs> and yells out, okay, which echoes back at him, and he um, and he also berates Stan for carrying around a small revolver and waving it around, not realizing it loaded. He does visit Stephen, who's now confined to a wheelchair because both his legs have been amputated. He also reveals that somebody in Saigon has been mailing large amounts of money to him, and he's convinced that it's Nick. He brings a reluctant Stephen, uh, Mike brings a reluctant Stephen home to Angela and then travels to Saigon right around its fall in 1975. In fact, um, Semino mixes in news reports and scenes of chaos at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon into the scenes where Mike is arriving in Saigon to go to find Nick. 
He does track down Grinda, who has made a lot of money from the Russian roulette playing Nick. He finds Nick in a crowded gambling club, but Nick has no recollection of his friends or his home. Mike enters the game of Russian roulette against Nick, hoping to jog his memory and persuade him to come home, but Nick's mind is completely gone. To keep him from taking another turn, Mike grabs Nick's arms, which are covered in scars from drug use. At the last moment, after Mike reminds Nick of their hunting trips together, Nick recognizes Mike and smiles, and he raises the gun to his temple, and he kills himself. Back home in 75, the friends have gathered for Nick's funeral, whom Mike has brought home, staying true to his promise. Together, they quietly sing God Bless America, and Mike offers a toast to the memory of Nick. So that, like I said, is a as quick and dirty as I can get in terms of a yeah. plot synopsis of the deer hunter. Cause there's a, there's a lot of character in this film too. So the plot mm-hmm. is actually, it's actually not incredibly complicated. You know, they get married, they go hunting, they ship off to war, they get captured, they escape, they end up in different situations. And then Mike goes back to get Nick and Nick ends up dying in that game of Russian roulette. And that's, but beyond that, you have all of this, very, very, very deep character-driven stuff. So, did uh, did you like this from the start? What, what, you know, what is all? What has been your opinion on this on this film? Yeah, well, as I said, I was from the first time I watched it. I remember, like I, like I said, thinking, "Wow, this is this this stuff back home is going on a, a really long time." But mm-hmm. it's but it's engrossing because we 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 the first time we see all the characters. Um, uh, you know, Mike and Nick and Steven—they're at work. They're at yeah. the steel mill, so they're—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're working with the smelting, and they're—they're they're working with steel, which is very dangerous stuff to do. So they're—they're—they're they're, they're used to this sort of stuff of being in a, a high-pressure, dangerous situation, and and the and then the thing that really struck me is um, the the mundanity of life in a small town—that it has its own its own drama, its own ebbs and flows. And it's all so realistically depicted. It's all very believable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when um, Stephen's mother comes and is is yelling at him before the wedding because they're 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 getting a drink at the tavern because the wedding is in the evening because they all work the shift, the overnight shift, and they're getting out in the morning. Yeah. And so so his mom is yelling at him, and she's you should wear a scarf. I ain't wearing a scarf with a tuxedo, <laughs> ma. You don't wear a scarf with a tuxedo. Um, and then just all of them screwing around. They're all so familiar with each other. It, it's clear that, you know, again, being in a small town, and I grew up in a small town in New York, so I kind of understand this to a degree, that, you know, the they they have their own their own kind of way of, of working that's different from other places. The, the note that I made is life is life, you mm-hmm. know. We, we see little bits. We see Angela getting ready. And to get married, and she's saying, "I do, I do, I do." She's 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 got all she's all nervous, and she's got all sorts of jitters for reasons we'll we'll find out about a little bit later. Uh, you know, we see Linda, who is you know she's taking care of her dad, and she's trying to help him out, and her dad's obviously in an alcoholic stupor, and is on a rant and punches her in the face. You know, and it's mm-hmm. it's unblinking. It's very cinema verite, which makes sense for Samino. And makes sense for 1978. Um, and then the, I said the, the detail of the whole, the wedding, the Russian Orthodox wedding and the reception. I love it. It's great. It's great new Hollywood filmmaking because it, it really, there's at, 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 in one sense, there's nothing really going on because it's just this, this is the wedding service. This is the reception. But there, like you say, with the characters, there is so much going on that is below the surface that is done based on the strength of the performances by De Niro and uh, Walken, 
especially, and then um, uh, Streep as well, because she is great in this. For so early in her career, um, for her to uh, uh, put in the performance that she does as Linda against these other two guys that were um, much more established in their careers at this point, it's, mm-hmm. it's really something. Yeah, I think De Niro already had an Oscar for um, Godfather Part Two, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's around the right time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, because God, well, God, yes, Godfather Two is seventy four. So yeah, yeah. He, and he won. Yeah, he won that one. Yeah, and then he would get um, he he would get um, uh, he would win again in a couple of years for Raging Bull. That's mm-hmm. what I was I was I was getting my years mixed yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah. He, um, Samina does that really, really well, and it's interesting because the the Vietnam stuff is it's not entirely surreal, but there's a little bit of surrealism to it. Um, the 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 one film I think I can directly compare, like you know, scenes prior to going off to to Nam, to is probably Born on the Fourth of July, which takes place. Which is, it's like, a lot of that movie, as, as much as I enjoyed it, a lot of it is Oliver Stone being Oliver Stone, which, so you have to kind of um, take that as you will, especially since he goes from Born of the Fourth of July to The Doors to Natural Born Killers, so things get kind of like weirder and weirder yeah. in terms of his <laughs> movies. And um, Ron Kovic had been from Massapequa, New York, which is a 30 minutes west of where I grew up, and um, is very much a, you know... Uh, Cookie cutter Levitt home suburb established in the late 40s or built up in the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. So, what Stone takes advantage of the fact that it's this sort of idyllic American suburban existence that gets disturbed for this young man. And so, he doesn't present that in a very, very real way. He presents it, um, you know, with sepia tones and things like that. And what I liked about this was exactly what you said is that this is, um, a, for lack of a better category you could call this this town like quote working class yeah. um you know this it's, it's a it's a steel town it's and you're right it's um it, he he just kind of lets the camera follow things through this and and i know you know simino was notorious um for going over budget in every movie he ever did and the the follow-up to this was heaven's gate which like pretty yep. much destroyed his career and an entire studio. But um, because United <laughs> Artists really never recovered from Heaven's Gate. Uh, yeah. But that's a whole other whole other uh, conversation. It's an he- entire- Heaven, Heaven's Gate was so was such a disaster. It made critics who had given the Deer Hunter good reviews go back and question publicly. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even making that up. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, granted... <laughs> I would say, and, and, and Peter Biscuit does go into um, some really, really good details on Heaven's Gate in uh, his book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Uh, yep. And it's just, Cimino's ego was always there. It's just now that he's pumped up on, you know, the high of winning an Oscar. Right. Yeah. Or two, really, for Best Picture and Best Director. He's like, you know, it's it's the sort of um, ego trip of, I have carte blanche, I can do whatever I want. You know, and we've seen other directors have that happen to them. And the thing with with Samino in this is that uh, you know they they knew that the, the studio knew that this was a potential problem for this film based mm-hmm. on the script because they, believe it or not the original script of this and there is some controversy of how we got from the original script to the shooting script as far as who made what contributions yeah. this the, as for for a film that is so well regarded as a as a Vietnam War film 
This film did not start out as a Vietnam film. The original script for this involved a person going to Vegas and playing Russian roulette and gambling, getting into that the scene that way. It was only after it had been kicked around uh, Hollywood for a while um, through the mid-70s that we got to hear where it was late enough in the 70s that this idea that, um, you know, we... Because in, in the, you know, coming, in, coming into the decade and, and obviously during the war, uh, you didn't make critical films about Vietnam. It just wasn't done. It was seen as not necessarily from a, a jingoistic standpoint, but from a practical standpoint, yeah. it was seen as box office poison. Yeah, because like, you don't want to. Yeah, yeah, because I think the only the only green uh, Vietnam film of note that I can think of pre the end of the war is probably the ballot, not the ballot, the Green Berets, the, the John Wayne movie. There yes. might have been one or two others. That's I think is the most notable. And then beyond that, you have. Um, I think there might have been an adaptation of The Quiet American in there, but I don't even think that... I don't know if that would count. I know there was a later one with Michael Caine. But yeah, you're right. And, and with, within a, two years, you mm-hmm. have this uh, coming home, and then the following year, Coppola finally gets to release Apocalypse Now, which is a yeah. story in itself. <laughs> right. So the idea of making this a... And, and the thing is, is that The Deer Hunter is often like um, as a, uh, kind of put together with you know, Apocalypse Now and uh, the Stone movies mm-hmm. as this um, this you know brutal tearing apart of the Vietnam War, and it's it, it's odd also because it's really not. It mm-hmm. it Sabino leans into the cinema verite in that he simply presents it, and do, we don't know his agenda. We don't know his, uh, for lack of a better term, his the narrative, the narrative, the political narrative he wants to tell. It's simply saying that this is what it is. You know, the one of the major, major criticisms that people have made at the Deer Hunter over the years is that it's not unrealistic because there was no reports ever of the Viet Cong or the NVA forcing POWs to play Russian roulette. There was yeah. never any proof of that. Um, I'd like to also point out that that, despite that, um, I'm not, I, I am not a fan at all of Michael Colbert, but his concept of truthiness. Mm-hmm. Is the exact thing with this because when you the first time I watched it, I bought that because of course you know we we've all heard horror stories about yeah. how POWs were treated. It wouldn't may it it doesn't it passes the smell test even though intellectually now I know it's not true. But so that's one of the major criticisms that well it's unrealistic because they didn't force him to do that. And the one I always kind of fall back on, you know, Roger Ebert said that is there a better metaphor for the entire war than. You know, just three regular guys from so some small town in the U.S. Uh, being halfway around the world with their own gun pointed at their head. You know, yeah. that's it's from a from a a, a a metaphorical standpoint that that is the Vietnam War. You, you're you're literally pointing it at your own head at that point uh, because of the entire the entire situation. And so that I think is a real um, you know that that that's why it, again it's hard to tell what Samino's. Um, where his angle is, yeah. his angle is that it's everything is awful, and look at what it's going to do, what this meat grinder has done. So to me, it, it always plays a little bit more ambiguous than a lot of those others, and that's one of the things I really like about it. Yeah, and I think what it helps with that is that you have three separate characters who have three separate paths after the war. So you, you have um, Stephen, who basically loses both of his legs, and he's in a, he's in a VA hospital, essentially suffering. You know, and which is which became a very kind of typical type of character in, in some of these movies that was the post um, 
the post-war movies. You know, uh, Voight's character in John Voight's character in Coming Home is paralyzed. You have, of course, Ron Koek and, and, and others and, and, and other depictions of people in the hospitals with some sort of physical disability as a result of the war. But then you have Nick, who was mentally, seriously mentally wiped out by everything, and then ends up ends up a junkie because he literally cannot escape, you know, cannot escape Vietnam. But Mike goes back into the service, mm-hmm. you know, which. Which people did. So you have he's he is he's taking different angles with these different characters. In, in my mind, I'm like he's trying to show us different ways this affects these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think I, I'm with you on on Ebert's use of this as a as a metaphor because that's what you can do with something like literature or film. You can set up these symbolic moments and and things that are meant to represent other things, especially in in a in a film where you're always going to exaggerate certain things for the sake of a plot or you are going to dramatize things a little bit more than they actually would be would have would have happened i mean it's certainly brutal mm-hmm. um i and i honestly think the the scene where they put them in the tiger cage with the rats and the dead bodies is just as brutal if if, if not worse because it's yeah. a, it's a more visceral scene as opposed to what is a brutal scene of Russian roulette, but that's like, it is theatrical in nature, and if you accept that it's theatrical in nature, you understand what was what these people were being put through. Yeah, uh, and and the thing also is even it, it's amazing to me because like you said, it's about I think the wedding from the from the opening credits to the scene in the village. I think it's like forty eight minutes, yeah, something long. like that. It's right around there. And and there's so much to unpack character wise from the wedding, but again, that's like I said, life is life. That's mm-hmm. that's life in a small town. And then we immediately cut to the village being under attack, and it's it's the giant explosions, and Mike is is caught up in the blast, and he sees what do we got? We have an uh, an NVA soldier tossing a a, uh, a a stick bomb down into the shelter with all the women and children, and then and then gunning down a woman with holding a baby. And then Mike, you know, with a flamethrower, because he's special forces, and they still use flamethrowers in Nam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly enough, it, it's, 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 it's astounding to me every time I, I think about that. I mean, intellectually, again, I understand it, but it's like, wow. But in any event, so then, then Mike uh, kills the guy with the flamethrower, and it's like, it's, it, we've gone from all this joyousness. And yeah, there's, there's that underlying stuff. Everyone's got their own, everyone's fighting their own battle, to... We cut immediately to just complete brutality, and and there's no on both sides because Mike is just as brutal as the NVA soldier, yeah. in his in in his dispatching of him, and then you know the 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 choppers roll in and there's Nikki and Steven, and then that doesn't go well because then you see the the NVA columns coming in and we're and and we're right now in the camp we go from the tavern after the hunt to the village oh. to the camp in about five minutes. Yeah. It's 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 um, the immediacy. It 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 puts you, uh, you know. Camino has had us living in this world in Clareton for almost an hour, and then we're immediately changed scenes twice, and we're 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 off balance as viewers. Yeah, and he he doesn't. What he does really well is. Um, he doesn't pull the soap opera thing of like when you watch a happy moment in an, in an old soap opera, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, because that's how soap operas work. 
You know, right. like people, somebody could be having a happy birthday, and you're like, all of a sudden, you're waiting for somebody to either get into a fight, scream at each other, or like a long lost evil twin to walk in the room. Sabino doesn't really do that. There's subtle bits and pieces of it throughout the wedding, but that would be the case if it was just a wedding he was filming, because, you know, um, on happy occasions, mm. there's always. I don't know, there's, there's always BS and drama among family members or whatever. And there's a couple of there's a couple of moments where um where you kind of see that kind of underlying tension come in. Uh it when they're sitting at the bar at the wedding, there's a there's it's it's at a v, VFW hall. Uh, which again is another setting that is completely realistic for this mm-hmm. era, this town, these people. You know, th- this is where people rented out these halls for like celebrations and things like that. And uh, Mike and uh, a couple of them go to the bar, and um, there was a guy in a special forces uniform. Mike asked, tries to ask him what Vietnam, Vietnam is like, and the soldiers ignores him. And um, the and you know, and then he tells him that you know, me, Stephen, and Nikki are going to Vietnam. And the Green Beret raises his glasses, he's like, "Yeah, well, fuck it," you know. Yeah. And so it's you know, it, it's a funny moment because they they turn around like, "Yeah, fuck it," but at the same time, it's you know, you you get that feeling that it's not, you know, that, that they're, they're headed towards something. And then there's the very subtle yet not so subtle bit about, um, I, I have this in the synopsis. It says Stephen and Angela drink from conjoined goblets, which is a traditional yep. part of the Orthodox wedding su- ceremony. Superstition asserts that if they drink without spilling any wine, they will have good luck for life. But no one notices two drops of blood, red wine spill on her wedding gown. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if you don't know that, you see it, it, it. It's not like, it's not like he focuses in on it for like ten seconds, and there's like a musical cue to tell you, "Hey, kids, this is important. Remember this later." It's there, and then it goes because nobody else notices it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I appreciated that subtlety from him, and yeah, it's the smash cut from this fun hunting trip in the bar, and they're 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 sitting around the piano and everything and it's almost like a smash cut to this yeah this this fight kind of the reverse of of like 2001 where the you have the yeah. scene of the 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 violence of the the ape man beating on the with the bones and he chucks the bone up in the air and they cut cooper cuts right to the satellite floating in space and it's all peaceful mm. and the blue danube starts playing and everything yeah. it's almost like Samino's flipping that on its on its end yeah the 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 bit I, I really like in the um, in the wedding um, segment. There, there's a couple of bits. First off, just a bit of trivia. Uh, we see Axel and um, uh, Axel and John mm-hmm. there at the front, and they're you know they're 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 kind of scamming people a little bit. You know, it's like hey, five bucks gets you a, a cigar and a drink and a dance with the beautiful bride. But around them is just piles and piles of presents. It's all the wedding gifts. Yeah, and. Uh, just the bit of trivia, which I think is hilarious, is that when they had all these extras that they were bringing in to do the wedding, they were all locals in Ohio. That was filmed in in Ohio, I mm-hmm. believe it was in Ohio. There's uh, or it, it's actually it, it, there's four different small towns. None of them are Clareton, Pennsylvania, where they filmed the Clareton scenes. But wherever they were shooting at this hall, they had the extras. They asked them to just wrap a box like you were bringing a wedding gift. The idea being that one, it saves us the money for having to do it. And two, if everyone wraps their own gifts to all look different, it'll look more realistic. And so they did that. So that's a giant pile of presents. Well, when they were cleaning up after that, they discovered that people didn't just wrap empty boxes. 
they brought actual wedding gifts like knife blocks and china and fluted glasses and all <laughs> sorts of stuff. And so th- to this day, it's a mystery of who ended up with all of this loot from the wedding. <laughs> but uh, but the, <laughs> on a more serious note, the, um, the bit where um, Nikki is dancing and he's been and, and Linda has been with Nick the entire time because you can see that, you know, her her home life is is not going well. Nick is. Uh, you know, she, she goes to before the um, before the wedding, she goes out to Nick and Mike's trailer and says, look, hey, you know, guys, well, you're out there. I really want to live here. I'll pay you. And, and Nick's like, no, how long I know you? I'll take care of you. And you can see that she has, you know, the affection that she has for Nick. Um, and so when they're he, Nick is dancing. And so Mike takes Linda to the bar and they get a rolling rock, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> and they're and uh, and so they're drinking their beer and it's the most uncomfortable view that we're watching we're watching them together and you can see that linda desperately wants to get away from mike and and mike wants to he he wants to be near her but he doesn't know how to do it because of the feelings he has that are unresolved and um and and at one point we're kind of looking over their shoulder a little bit back towards uh like we're standing behind the bar we're looking back towards the rest of the hall Mm -hmm. and and nick comes in and linda like runs to him and and grabs onto his arm immediately and you can there, there's so many ways to read this based on first off the information that we have watching the film in me, uh, as it's happening the idea that okay maybe she you know is is she's you know uncomfortable she wants to get back with Nick she's she's had this you know uh, she she's got the, a black eye and <laughs> wearing a bridesmaid's dress you know she she's you know uncomfortable doing this but then her response to Mike when he comes back. And, you know, the way that, that she is reaching out to him and kind of, you know, she, she asks him directly, can we go to bed uh, at one point? It's like, does she have unresolved feelings for Mike at that point that she doesn't understand? And so she's trying to get away from Mike and back to Nick because she understands her feelings with Nick. And everyone knows, yeah, Nick and Linda, they're, they're together. So it's it's I said it's uh, especially for someone so young in her career who was a lot of this was was um, put together uh, kind of during shooting because um, you know um, um, uh, Meryl Streep got this role mostly so she could stay close to uh, uh, John Cazale. John Cazale had terminal cancer at this yeah. point. This was his final film. He he died uh, before ever getting to see the film, unfortunately, and and they were close. So she took this role as you know Nick's girlfriend, which was like this very generic role um, to to be with with Kazali. and uh, you know Samino kind of explained the setup to her and said, "Why don't you flesh it out some?" So a lot of this is all her. So it's it's very like I said, it, it's it's that character stuff that is that keeps you engrossed. And then you know, so we're 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 invested in the lives of these of these people in this in this steel town in Pennsylvania, and then all the all the pieces get smashed, and yeah. and it's you know we're, whereas we're a few minutes later in film time we are so far away from that that it may as well not have happened, you know we are it's it, you know we've got uh, you know Nick and and Mike sitting down at a table across from each other with three gun with three bullets and a gun, you know. And and again and a bunch of guys screaming at him in Vietnamese. It's <laughs> it's 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 harsh. I, I said this to my wife because my wife's never seen this. But I, I and I said I said it's harsh. I said even knowing what's coming, this movie is 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 gut wrenching. It's hard. It's difficult to watch. Even knowing 
what the outcome is going to be and, and all that. I've seen this film several times, but just, just watching it every time it, it, it sets your teeth on edge. Yeah. And the, the scenes back home after, um, between the two, between the two Vietnam scenes and, um, are, uh, you have, uh, you, we have to give credit to, um, Ritania Alda, who played Angela, because she is just, I'm close to catatonic in a way yeah. of of because of what has happened to Stephen. I mean, he they if they were married more than a couple of days before these guys shipped out, I'd be surprised. It was really implied that like they got married, they went on that hunting trip, and they were gone, and it probably happened within a week or two. Yeah. So so and it's um, which is a si- situation that was very similar to like. Uh, like our grandparents' generation in in the Second World War, where there were a number of people who did get married, like right before the men shipped off to war, and you know, not knowing if they would see them again. And uh, in this case, he's there, but you know, he Stephen's been uh, Stephen's been to the VA hospital, and and he's it's just it, everything has completely fallen apart there. There's no. Beyond Mike finding out that it's obviously that Nick's been sending him money, um, there's nothing else for him. It's like it, it's everything is gone in terms of Angela and Stephen, and, and so it's this uh, really, really stark contrast to what we saw in the very beginning of the movie. Um, that wasn't really te- again. It wasn't really telegraphed. It's like you know you you see a little subtle thing about the two drops of blood, but you know we know these three guys are going off to war. Um, and we come back and it's just all completely shattered. And then De Niro, I think, plays a guy who has obvious, because we could call it post-traumatic stress, about what he went through in a way that, um, you know, he, he seems to, he swings from one mood to the other. And he's, he's still trying to keep it together as like, you know, Mike, the guy who was kind of the leader of this group. And that's why it makes total sense to me that he would go back into the army at, at at the chance he has because when he shows up in Saigon in 75 he's in you know he's in uniform it's not like he he got there because he was uh, suddenly a civilian he's going back over there you know there was no way he could have he, no way he could have done that anyway but at the same time like that was that was essentially his way of coping was to lean into you know the figuring out like you know he, there's a place from the service or he has an unfinished business or something and um, and and that's what leads him back there. Aside from the fact that the plot does demand that he go back to Vietnam and find and find Nick. I know one of the other uh, big controversies over this movie is the way it depicts the Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Now I tend to I, so like one of the things um, one of the things I try not to do when I'm covering stuff is uh, is get too political about opinions of whether you know of the war and things like that because i was never i wasn't there you know (laughs) it's any opinion i might have on something is is essentially hindsight but there there was a lot of criticism leveled at this movie for the way it it portrayed all of the north vietnamese as savage and it was compared to those old jingoistic world war ii movies where the japanese were uh, portrayed in the in a very racist way you know there were you know it's um you know there are there are some really really good world war ii movies um, and then there are ones that were obviously just kind of pressed out so that, you know, the people could see it and, and the way the Japanese are described there or shown there. It's like outright 
savage and you could it, it's not very hard, it's not very very subtle i i understand where the accusations came from back in 1978 i don't know if i totally agree with it especially since Simino is going for something that's beyond you know a realistic depiction and things yeah. and, and he's going for that metaphorical approach as opposed to and and it's not like you know it's not like at the end of the movie Nick's like hold up with some NVA family in Hanoi and, and oh my god what should be a normal family is all you know evil or something he's like he's disappeared into the underworld yeah and um, it's it's a depiction of, of that where I, I thought it was pretty fair. I can see where the criticism comes from, and there are other movies out there that are that lean into it way too much where the criticism is a little at least a little more valid. Yeah, but here I, I mean the, the thing here is that is that we don't see the only parts of uh, uh, of the Vietnamese, the only aspects of the Vietnamese people that we see is the the enemy soldiers mm-hmm. And the red light district, and you know, so it's it's not exactly the shining parts of of their of this culture. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the Vietnamese characters in this are NVA soldiers, or prostitutes, mm-hmm. or uh, underworld figures. Yeah, and so it's like, yeah, they're they're very unsavory people in general, but that's who that that's who the story has. Yeah, it's not like the you know none of the um none, none of the the farmers or or any of the other civilians have any lines. Mm-hmm. They don't have any any scenes here. It's it's this is you know that this is where Nick is at the point now where this this is where he goes. He he seeks solace in the awful. Yeah. For for whatever reason, whatever is broken inside of his mind. The amazing thing is that he's got a ticket home. You know yeah. he's he's in the hospital. He's in the the uh, the the army hospital, and they say we got to get this guy out of here. You know the doctor says that and. And and Nick has the opportunity to reach out to to Linda and go home, and he can't do it. And it's it becomes the question of for 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 Nick's character, it's like, was what was it that that brought him to this state? Was it being captured? Was it the you know having to to play Russian roulette against his best friend? Yeah. Was it him uh, him being him escaping and not knowing the fate of of Mike and Stephen? There's no easy answers in this movie for anybody. Yeah, it really does recall All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes, and the hospital scenes in 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 that because it's very very much the same same sort of pedigree in that way. You know that that you have men in those in in, in the chapters in those books who um, who range from just their minds completely gone or they're suicidal or they're scared and things, and they have been through so much. And we get one person's kind of journey through that, and he encounters these people, and he sees that they've had it much worse than he is, and and we we do get that through Nick, um, and you know, and I know it's not a complete counter argument to the the, the accusations of, of racism level that the at the movie or the p- depiction of the North Vietnamese, but there is that one scene where they do come across the caravan of refugees escaping yeah. the war, and that's how Stephen gets picked up because there's a there's a um, Arvin Jeep, yeah. Jeep, like a, well, it's, it's a Jeep and like an APC. It's a yeah, little convoy, yeah. yeah. And it's it's in the very least we are seeing what this war is doing to the people of that country, too. Yeah. You know, because it's you know um, because you have these people who are there essentially losing their homes because they have been bombed, they have been fought at, they have to be relocated, so, and which was a major part of a lot of our involvement in this and, and, and the South Vietnamese government involvement in the war to 
I don't remember what it was called. But it was just, there were a lot of relocation things. There were a lot of there was a lot of trying to take care of people who were being displaced because the war just it was you know, it was just, it was a brutal civil war. Yeah. So yeah. at least Amino is is showing us a little bit of that. But it, but I think you're right. Is that there is somebody here who has nowhere else to turn, and, and the idea that he would get not only sucked into this underworld, but essentially hooked on drugs as well, might be a little more theatrical than what would have really happened to some people, but there, you know, the, the, some of this stuff was rampant. It, you know, people had problems after this war, and, and yeah. there were there were a number of people who did. Um, if, they, if they weren't hooked on drugs, they, they crawled into the bottle. You know, I mean, so, right. so the idea that, that there's so, so much psychological damage to him that would cause him to go in this direction is, uh, it, 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 at least from my perspective, and I think you're agreeing with me, is that it is very realistic, even if it's filmed very theatrically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, again, it's it's not it's not meant to, to be taken literally. I don't mm-hmm. think. Yeah. It's meant to be taken again in a, in a metaphoric uh, context. But yeah, but I mean, and and that's the thing, Nick. When we we again uh, going back to the the structure of this, and what's amazing is that. Um, so though the the first part of this film, primarily the wedding, took almost half of Prince, the, the the time they had allotted for principal photography, mm-hmm. and they were already over budget. <laughs> so so they knew that they had to deliver a winner if they had any chance of salvaging this. Yeah. Okay. So um, so that that but that but that again that that's a sometimes the story you know like uh, who was it Paul Harvey and now you know the rest of the story. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but again but in, in those early scenes. Yes, everybody is screwing around. Everybody's horsing around. You know they, uh, um, you know every, everybody's got their own things that are going on, and they all know each other. But at the wedding, Nick is just he's he's so he's so like everybody loves him. He's the life of the party. I love that that Walken gets a chance to dance because Walken has a background in classical dance. Mm-hmm. And so he, he gets to do some dancing on the floor. And he's so graceful, and so, that's the thing I always love about Walken in general is that his movements. And when he's acting, are usually very precise, uh, and and but I always account that to his his background. But he's you know he he is the guy that everybody likes. You know he asks Linda to to marry him, and and of course she says yes because again this is tying in with with her and this is her way to to get out of her life and into into uh, uh, some happiness that she finds. Mm-hmm. And to see him literally go one eighty is like I said it, it's. Uh, it's it's become something of a cliche of the war film mm-hmm. since the since the the late seventies, but it's it's just it, it's still shocking and it's still powerful and it's very well done to have uh, you know again this guy that is kind of the life of the party that everybody likes and everybody respects and even he's really the only one that that is kind of on the same wavelength as Mike because they they talk about one shot and the importance of. That that hunting is is doing it right. It's not just going up there and drinking a bunch of beers and firing your guns off. That hunting is to Mike. It's almost it's almost like a spiritual experience for him. And yeah. uh, and and Nick is the only one that buys into that. And so you get this connect this connection between the two that you don't even with Stephen and Mike. You don't get that same connection. You get the big brother sort of feeling with with uh, Mike and Stephen when you know uh, at at the end of the, the the wedding he says, you know, I never really slept with Angela. And and it's the the implication that Angela's pregnant, but it may not be Stevens. Hmm. And and then you know Stan, who is uh, John Cazale, says, "Well, I I know it to be true. I happen to know it to be true." And Mike just knocks him, you know, says, "You shut the fuck up." 
cop band, you know. <laughs> and it and yeah, the, there's the vulgarity flies fast and free in this. Uh, if I could, uh, one of my dirty jokes of all time. It's at the very beginning. Uh, Nick says, "Hey, did you hear about the Happy Roman? It was Gladiator." But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but so there again. But it's it's all that, and and so that also raises a question, like you said, with with Stephen and Angela. Is that part of it? Is this idea that the little kid that we see, you know, that mm-hmm. is is part of Stephen's refusal to want to leave the VA because his attitude that well, it's he's not even my son, yeah. and and it's it's all this stuff, and it's it's the complexity of all of this, and and. And again, it's it, and then uh, it it but it's not it, it presents itself and lets you kind of make your own decisions when they're at Nick's funeral when they go back to uh, go back to John's uh, tavern, um, you know, or, or is either is either at the tavern or is it at the funeral? I forget. I think it's at the tavern where Angela and uh, and Stephen are sitting near each other and he reaches out and just touches her, and there's almost like the the idea that okay, well maybe, you know, maybe Nick his downfall maybe it has something that will be a positive in the end maybe yeah. you know and and then of course the very controversial at the time the inclusion of them all singing god bless america mm-hmm. uh, at the tap and again th- this gets back to what uh, the kind of ambiguity is this meant as a rah-rah cheerleading scenario look how great the usa is like you might have gotten in a more jingoistic film uh-huh. is this meant as a put down a ironic use of god bless america now that we've seen the awful things that have happened to these men that served for america it's it's we, we take our own conclusions from it it's it's framed in such a way that it's just the unblinking eye there is whatever Samino's personal opinion on this it doesn't enter into it we bring our own opinion to it yeah, and and he he really does that well because that scene could have been completely like maudlin and just over the top, yeah. and it and and he uh, the the tone he uses at the end matches what he's done, like say at the beginning. Anytime he's been back in Claritin, there, there's a very similar tone and mood, even if even if the circumstances have changed and things have been adjusted. And you're right, he he leaves it up to us. To decide what um, what to make of, of these scenes, as opposed to like Coppola in Apocalypse Now, where he's pretty on the nose. Whereas yes. you know, he's he's doing Joseph Conrad and he's doing the horror, the horror as Martin Sheen floats away, um, you know, down the back down the river after killing Brando. Um, but you know, here, yeah, you have and and the the idea that the story is not finished is is also really really important. You know, it, it's it feels like a moment of of uh, maybe an inch an inch or two toward the direction of healing because you have Nick's story is over, but you know, there's a lot of loose ends and there's a lot of things that will go on and there's a lot of healing that still has to be done and wounds that will be reopened and reclosed and it's this is something that will take years yeah um and and that's the one thing i got out of that scene where um is is that one thing i think he's definitely implying is like you know the the story here is not is not over and and this is going to continue on and it, it maybe maybe they will maybe they will make up maybe 
you know, some people will be better off than others, but it also might end completely tragically. And then it's up, up to us to, to extrapolate that beyond the yeah. end of the movie and, and hope that they, that everything turns out. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't want to lean too much into the fact that I was in high school when I saw this, but the, the line that there, there is a, a line from a Megadeth song that I am always reminded of in, in this portion of the film. The song is a tout le monde from the album Euthanasia from 1994. Mm -hmm. And the line is, moving on is a simple thing, but what it leaves behind is hard. And and that's always struck me as as being very much demon demonstrative of this scene. Um, moving on is a simple thing. All Nick does is something he's done dozens and dozens of times before to win all this money, is pick up a gun and hold it to his head and pull the trigger. And But what it leaves behind is the hard part that everyone else has to deal with. Because I guarantee you that the United States Army did not say that, you know, this guy who was AWOL killed himself in a Russian roulette game no. in a back alley somewhere. <laughs> no. And, and I doubt severely that Mike told everyone, oh, by the way, this is how Nick died. Mm -hmm. All we knew is that he was AWOL. Yeah. So they're not, you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're celebrating Nick, they're not embarrassed by him or, uh, you know, re rejecting him. Only yeah. Mike knows the truth, and and Mike's the one that offers the toast to him. Mm -hmm. So again, it's yeah, it's it, I, I agree. The idea that, um, uh, you know, um, th this this is going to seem kind of like uh, like a, a reach even for me. <laughs> have you seen Have you seen La La Land? No, I haven't. Okay, the I, I won't give away the 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 you know conceit of this film but the basic idea is that life is not like a musical that's mm -hmm. basically but it, it's a musical where life is not like a musical um so but but that film has kind of the same idea that things may not go always the way that you want them to but in the end life does go on and for those that are still here they have to move forward and, and make their decisions it's kind of the same idea it has the same feeling of that okay we're not watching the story anymore but the story's still happening and I get that. I, I agree that that is a really the way you put that is is very much uh, how I feel about that as well. So I, I agree that because we've invested uh, as viewers and Samino has invested so much time and effort in making these characters believable and have us be interested in them, that we have to believe that their story continues on and that there is resolution, good, bad, or somewhere in the middle for everyone in in Clareton, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And it earns the ending. That's the other thing. Yeah. I think that um, that it is this is why it, it won Best Picture and and or or at least was nominated and and then won. And uh, because everything that happens at the end, even even with Nick's death, which is a oh, it's a scene that is just so like he pulls the trigger split second and it's over. It's not. Yeah. It's not exaggerated. In in. <laughs> In a TV '80s action sort of way of like you know this, it's not overly dramatic. It's just you know it, it's just there and it, it happens. It's almost blink if you and you miss it happening. Yeah. And um, since he stuck with it that way through the whole thing, and 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 knowing what, what we watched at the beginning of the movie, by the time we get to the end, you feel like you know this is this is where it has to end. Um, 
as far as you know our look at these people. Yeah. So and, and funny funny enough, like I'm looking at this and I'm and I'm, I'm I'm comparing it to other films of this sort of of type because like you know with when as I was going through movies, a lot of them I started kind of with the combat movies and I started moving closer and closer to the the wars over and we have to you know deal with it so like you know we did first blood which has some vietnam scenes in terms of flashbacks but is pretty much mostly you know in the present day um and and i'm i'm watching all this and kind of just it's it's hard to avoid comparing it to other movies of the same Mm -hmm. type but even then this this is one of the better this is one of the better ones and like you said the, the some of the some of the ways these characters act have become cliches, but the cliche has an or, always has an origin point, and this is one yeah. of the origin points, at least for Vietnam. You know, the the only other movie I can think of that would really hold a candle to this, as far as like an immediate post-war experience, would be William Wyler's *The Best Years of Our Lives*, based mm-hmm. on yes. World War II, which is I love that movie, um, and. Um, Another one that is, again, I've seen many times, but is very difficult to watch. Yes. yes. For and, and difficult to watch. Ru- this is going to sound stupid. It's difficult to watch for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. It's not difficult to watch because it's poorly made. It's difficult to watch because it's so well made. Yeah. It, it, it's like I, I have very few criticisms of the movie. There are times where I wish they had given Meryl Streep just a little bit more to yeah. do. But then again, this was a very, very early role in her career. If this was, if this had been filmed five years later, they probably would, because she would win. I think she won the following year, or she was at least nominated the following year for Kramer versus Kramer, and I think she won. <laughs> the only, the only other tidy like little nitpick, and this is me being like, <laughs> Anor Attentive has a hyphen. Copyright yeah. Michael Bailey. <laughs> you live in in South Carolina. I don't know how far you are from the mountains. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm right near the Blue Ridge. Right. And uh, you know Pittsburgh is you know they're going hunting in the Appalachians, which apparently in Clareton, Pennsylvania, look like the the Canadian Rockies. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <they're... laughs> I told you. You know, total nitpick doesn't really take me out of the movie. I'm like, wait no. a second, is this supposed to be Appalachia? Why is this? Are we on the set of First Blood all of a sudden? Yeah, yeah, it it, it, it does not quite match up. I mean, but uh, you know, again, you you work with what you got. Oh, yes. thing you know. The, I mean, it, it, the funny thing is that you know this is the the first, also the first uh, Vietnam film that did um, that did location shooting in Thailand. In Thailand. Thailand, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which lends that again lends an authenticity. Which you can't, you know, you can't. You there's only so much you can do on a back lot or shoot on, uh, you know, um, Griffin Park somewhere in Hollywood, you know, yeah, to make it really look like the jungle. Yeah, the only the only person who who almost successfully pulled that off was Kubrick with Full Metal Jacket, um, yeah. but even then he stuck to. Um, I think it was supposed to be Huey or one of the other major cities in South Vietnam, and and so it was more of an urban. A lot of the scenes that they shot were more of an urban feel as opposed to. Um, Platoon uh, and Apocalypse Now, which I think were both in the Philippines. I know Apocalypse Now used the Philippines, yeah. Um, and, but yeah, you're right. This was the first one that was uh, released with with being shot. Um, and and he and he grabbed actors and and, and people from all around uh, the locality in Thailand to play some of these roles. There's there's a um, there's a story about how. Uh, one of the the first actor they hired to be uh, one of the um, NVA soldiers wasn't able to slap De Niro, so yeah. they got another guy who uh, was was a local Thai man with a particular dislike of Americans. 
And, <laughs> and, um, and then De Niro, this is according to Wikipedia anyway, De Niro suggested that Walken be slapped for real by one of the guards without any warning, and the reaction of Walken's face is genu- uh, genuine yeah. at that point. So... <laughs> Um, oh man! Yeah, but uh, it's just it's it's um it, it is it, if you're talking about I mean it, it's an essential I think it's an essential movie in general. Yeah, um, it's essential as as far as, far as a Vietnam movie goes. It's a, it, and I th- essential as a if somebody if you're one of those people who loves like the new Hollywood of the '70s, this is one of the you know if you want to list like ten movies from the '70s that you have to watch to get the feel of the '70s, this is on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think it's. I really do think it's deserving of all the praise it, it gets. Uh, you know, despite some of the <laughs> some of the crazier stories we heard about, like the late Michael Cimino, and um, although, like I said, most of those have to deal with his next film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing with the with the Deer Hunter is that it's it, it's not one you're just going to throw on. It, it, it's one of these ones you watch deliberately. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's not a life affirming film. Uh, it's not one where you're even going to be. It, it's not like an exciting pulse pounding movie. We talk again about about First Blood. It's like I don't know that you could get two more different films about the you know a similar topic as far as the the effects of the Vietnam War on the soldier, the individual soldier, yeah. than First Blood and and The Deer Hunter, both of which I love, but for clearly different reasons. Um, so it's one of these things that you got to watch deliberately, and it, it said, and 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 again, if you and for those who've never seen it, it is it is very gut wrenching. It's hard to watch. It's mm-hmm. upsetting. Uh, you talk about you know the 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 very quick uh, way that Nick dispatches himself in the in the game at the end. I mean, I remember again watching this the first time, not knowing where the hell this was going. Yeah. Not not knowing if Mike was going to get Nick out or not. And when he pulls it up and he says, one shot, and he takes it and puts and oh, it's, I mean, I remember just being devastated. It's like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. He, he's, he, you told him, don't leave you over there. He came for you. And, and you still did it. Yeah. Because at that point, whatever is broken inside of Nick is so far beyond fixing that even, even that he recognizes Mike and he knows what he's talking about. It, it's gone. There's there's nothing left anymore. Yeah. The the other one that always kind of stood out with me is when Mike goes to get Stephen at the VA hospital, and he said the first thing he says, "I don't want to go home." It's the first thing he says to him, and he and he says it almost with a smile on his face. Stephen says to Mike, uh, but then at the end when he's forcing him, and he says, "Come on," he's telling him, "Come on, you're coming with me. You're coming with me." He yells, "I don't fit. I don't fit, Mike." And Again, in a very simple way, isn't that, you know, that that's always been kind of my understanding of the mentality, especially veterans who have returned uh, home, that they don't fit, that this, the the world that, you know, the world is not for them anymore, because they're not, you know, that there's, I've read a lot of, um, uh, you know, books that talk about kind of, again, the psychological aspects of, of being wounded in combat, and the idea mm-hmm. that you're no longer whole. And that there's no place for him anymore. I, you know, Steven's singing, I can't go back to work at the steel mill. I, I can't go and take care of my wife when I'm in a wheelchair. I don't fit in this world anymore. And, and again, that, that, that there is a little bit of hope at the end with, with Steven and Angela. I always like because of that, because he's at that place where he'd, he, to him, it's safer to stay at the VA where 
everyone is similarly to use a, a incorrect term everyone is similarly damaged like he is yeah and 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 I and I get, I'm not I'm not saying that to be to be cruel that that is where I think Steven's mind is at he sees himself as incomplete that you know by losing his legs in in war he's no longer capable of being a man and that again and and it's Mike it has to be Mike who's the one who's his the one who's basically taking care of him has to drag him out of there so like I said it's yeah. It, it 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 is it is. I agree with I agree with all the, what you were saying. It it is one that first off, as far as like New Hollywood, and and this is the tail end of New Hollywood. Mm-hmm. New Hollywood would be dead by 1980. Oh yeah, I'm thinking like New York, New York, and um, one from the heart. You know, just movies that really destroyed uh, the, the people involved with them. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Co- what didn't wasn't Coppola on the hook for like several million dollars out of pocket for one from the heart? I think <laughs> so. I think so. And, and you know, and and on the other end of that, New Hollywood kind of ended was a victim of its own success because of Lucas and Spielberg. Yes. You know, I mean, which is I'm not I don't mean that in a negative way, but it, you know, like It's true. The, they they were they were New Hollywood darlings. Yeah. And then they made Jaws and Star Wars. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then and then the the studios figured out the formula for what they needed to do and then and then we have the the dawn of just the, the summer blockbuster, you know, so that was the yep. whole thing. Um and, and it really didn't start to come around again until probably like the early nineties where you have you know, the rise of like early nineties independent films and, and things yep. out of Miramax and other studios like that. So, yeah, and and like I said, just thinking back to you're talking about how there's nowhere for me to go, and there's you know that nobody's going to understand me, is um, it, it's carrying on that tradition of of what uh, you know the very final chapter of All Quiet is what is exactly yeah. that narration. You know, nobody mm-hmm. will understand us, and and so what Remark established, um, you know, sixty years prior in a or fifty or sixty years prior in a novel, um, you know, Semino is just um, picking up with those those themes and and they get repeated throughout. You know there are motifs in these types of movies and sometimes yeah. they're done very cheesy, mm-hmm. <laughs> very maudlin. But sometimes you have something that is. And I think this transcends its own war too. And I think that's what's really yeah. really important uh, for a movie like this. That like you know it's not just about Vietnam. It can be yes. you know it can be about any war that you're dealing with because it's it's a common human experience. Absolutely. Talk, yeah, saying mentioning all quiet in the Western Front. Yeah, it's always been the astounding thing to me is that, um, you know, of, of course, all quiet in the Western Front, of course, is about a German soldier. Mm-hmm. That 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 experience, the details were different, but the experience was the same. Yeah, you know, we don't get films. I, I've recently on the show, you've done a series of stories talking about um, uh, Arvin. Mm-hmm. And uh, from issues of the Nam, and I, 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 I really want to get my hands on those. Those are ones that are gaps in my collection because you don't hear stories about Arvin. No, not here in the U.S. Now I'm sure in Vietnam there are, are, are stories about Arvin, but you know the the war was like you said it was it was a different context for the men that served in the ARVN yeah. than it was for the men in the U.S. Army, or and different for the, the NVA. Yeah. So the, but the, the details are different, but the, the physical and psychological impacts are the same. And that's, you know, uh, again, I, I, know, um, I know I'm a little far afield here, but, you know, when Joe Orlando was the editor of the DC War Books at mm-hmm. DC Comics, there was a little, a little badge that was at the end of every story. It said, "Make war no more." Yeah, because the majority of his guys were vets, and they understood it, and and that's what 
movies like this are, are really about. You know, whether you support the war or the cause or that or not, at the end of the day, you, you can't be in favor of combat. You know, you really can't. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, again, worthy cause, unworthy cause, whatever, you, you can't be in favor of men being put through this. Yeah. I think that, and honestly, I think that's a great note uh, to end it on. Um, so, uh, so thanks again. Thanks for. I'm glad we finally got together and we're able to. Yes. We're able to do this. I, 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 for a while. A peek behind the curtain for the listeners. I have been a terrible podcast guest. We've been talking about this the recording literally for months, and I blame myself because of my work schedule and everything else. That's uh, okay. <laughs> my mine was crazy for the last month or two anyway because I was wrapping up uh, at school. So um, before we let you go, tell everybody where uh, they can find you. Absolutely. So, um, uh, as uh, my main show, my main podcast is called Earth Destruction Directive. It is a Daikaiju podcast, uh, taking a look at Japanese giant monster culture, films, games, toys, and all that good stuff. Uh, that can be found right here on Two True Freaks. Uh, I also am a co-host on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, along with my brother Jason Jacanetti and uh, Two True Freak OG Chris Honeywell and the hair metal hero Chris Tyler. We look at horror films. Right now we are uh, between uh, series. We are starting up a new series of, this is a preview of coming attractions. We're going to be taking a look at like 80s VHS horrors. Ooh. So things that you would go to the video store and see a really cool VHS box for. That's what we're going to be covering, uh, a, a very a topic near and dear to my heart as a VHS enthusiast. Uh, that can also be found on Two True Freaks. And finally, I am also the co-host of Get Back to the Wrestling. Finally, there's a podcast on the Internet about professional wrestling, and I co-host that with my brother Jason and the Hair Metal Hero, and that also is on Two True Freaks. So if you go to wherever you got uh, this episode of In Country, you can probably find my shows as well. Nice. Yeah, and that'll do it for me. Um, next time around, I have seven episodes in a wake-up, and my next will be the first of the last two Punisher-related episodes. Uh, this first one will be a double-sized episode because I'm going to be covering what was supposed to be three issues of the NOM, but the, the, the series had been canceled, so it was collected in a trade called uh, Punisher and the NOM Final Invasion. And then there was a five-issue uh, storyline from Punisher Warzone a couple of years later that uh, I believe guest starred Ice that kind of continued what we saw in the Punisher War Journal issues that recently went over. So I'm going to be covering those. Uh, following that, I'm going to be getting back into one of the last few issues I have of the series, and then I'll move on to the second part of the Punisher episode, which is uh, some of the Garth Ennis stuff. So uh, you should expect that hopefully in a couple of weeks. I'm going to try to get back on a regular two-week schedule so I can just you know, take us home. Um, in style, instead of you know releasing an episode once every like four to six weeks, like I've been doing, as if it's been like old school shipping or something. So yeah. <laughs> uh, expect four to six weeks for delivery. So yes. um, thanks again, Luke. And uh, remember, you can find me on Twitter at popaff. That's P O P A F F. And as always, thanks for listening, and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. 
Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.